You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in the book of Haggai. Anybody know where Haggai is found in the Hebrew Scriptures? Like It's like Habakkuk, right? You're like, where is that? That's uh, next to... All right, so we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at this. And it, believe it or not, it fits the series of gripping and grasping and giving. It fits the context of joy. And it also appropriately segues us into the Advent season. Uh, so I want to ask you to maybe take the next couple of weeks and read Haggai. I'm going to stick really close to my notes um, because I need to um, import over the introduction. Anytime we do an introduction to a Bible book, to me, it's always important to stick close to the notes. Um, and so that's, that's what I'll do this morning. But before we begin, I want to take you to a text in 2 Timothy 3. I'll never forget years ago when I first got to WCC and we did a series in the names of God. And it was all Hebrew scriptures and had a man come. And he's no longer with us. He's with the Lord now. And he came up to me after the series and said, Preacher, I've been to church all my life and I've never heard a person talk about the Old Testament more than you. And then I, I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a compliment or not because there was a silence. And so I braced myself and he said, and I like it. And I was like, thank God. All right. And so because a lot of times we don't understand the role the Hebrew scriptures play. And you've had preachers say, well, we don't really need the Hebrew scriptures. That's actually a theological commitment that we're actually talking about in our Sunday night Bible study on a uh, small group study on church in Israel. How uh, there's a stream in Christianity that disregards the Hebrew scriptures as relevant. That leads to very serious love-your-neighbor consequences. But nonetheless, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul's writing a young apprentice. Timothy says, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you, listen to this, they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Paul's describing the Hebrew scriptures. We know that, right? Timothy didn't have a New Testament. The only testament he had was the Hebrew scriptures. And he highlights how the Hebrew scriptures can shed light on God's liberating story being worked out in the past and future coming together in Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And so Paul encourages Timothy and he encourages the use of the Hebrew scriptures to shape faithful living, right? In the present, in the current, in the moment, as citizens of God's kingdom saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And this is not only seen in Paul's letters, but Peter talks about it, James talks about it, John talks about it as they reference various commands such as love your neighbors. Matter of fact, Matthew, the gospel, quotes the Hebrew scriptures more than any other book in the Bible because Jesus, that was the Bible Jesus read. And so if it's the Bible Jesus read, it would do us well to, you know, read the Bible Jesus read too. Paul went on in a different letter writing to Roman Christians and he said in Romans 15, 4 through 6, our verse 4, he said, Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And the scriptures give us what? And as we wait, what? Patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. We need the Hebrew text. And that's what Paul is essentially trying to say. We find hope and encouragement, conviction. We find the ability and the strength to wait by God's Spirit when we understand the story that has formed us. So, 
we will do this for a couple of weeks in Haggai. So Haggai, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Scriptures will be on there. If you want to go to the Church Center app, all the notes are there for you as well. This book has meaningful application to us as a church. And I mean, I think it has meaningful application to Williamsburg Christian Church. Especially as we proceed on in this vision that God is unwinding in this church as we have continued to grow and continue to be a part of what God is doing in our city. And it matters, and I think it connects to the Gripping, Grasping, and Giving uh, series as well. And since it was written to a particular people living in a particular time and dealing with a particular circumstance, we have to do what most of us don't always enjoy, but I think is arguably the most important. We've got to lay down the historical context. All right, so here we go. Haggai is the only known book outside of the work of Ezra, which is also in the Bible. Um, and it's a prophetic work, and it's a small prophetic work. So along with Zechariah, Haggai encourages the rebuilding of the temple. And the rebuilding of the temple happened in 515 B.C. So this would be the second temple that is built after Babylon, who was the world empire, destroyed the temple because of the Jews' rebellion. King Nebuchadnezzar, I like to call him King Neb, especially when I'm willing to work with kids, we say Nebi, right? So it's because I can't even spell it. King Neb uh, invaded Jerusalem, destroys the temple that Solomon built. Now, what we have to remember is that the temple in the Hebrew story is God's house. And if the temple is destroyed, that means to a Jew, God's presence is absent. And that's a problem. Because for them, politics is religion, is economics, is everything. It's all bound up in a way of life. They don't live like we do. They don't compartmentalize life. There's no secular and sacred, really, in Christianity. We just make it one because of where we live. But there's no secular and sacred in the Hebrew life. All is holy, or it's not. And so what happens is the loss of God's presence in their imaginations, which means the loss of hope. And here they are, an occupied people, living under an occupied regime. And so during Haggai's ministry, the Babylonian Empire is defeated by the Persian Empire. So now Persia runs the world. Now, the Persian context is important because King Cyrus is the one who defeats the Babylonian Empire. And then he employs, and check this out because this is as old as time, he employs a political strategy among the occupied people that in order to gain a sense of control and, uh, and loyalty, fidelity to the kingdom of Persia, he's going to let all the occupied people rebuild their religious temples and rebuild their religious houses. He's going to allow them to find their religion again. And he's even going to work to fund it. And so this strategy works. He lets them return to their homeland. So the Jews return to their homeland. And they begin to rebuild their religious sanctuaries. And the Jews, for the Jews, that would be the temple. And so for Judah, this happens to them. And Cyrus, and one of the things important, Cyrus wasn't a worshiper of or believer in Yahweh. He he was not even interested in Yahweh. And what we learn about the Hebrew Scriptures is Yahweh often works through, through godless governments to accomplish God's purposes. You with me on this? Yahweh worked through Cyrus's and the government bank account. I need you to hear me on this. Yahweh worked through the empire's money to rebuild the temple. And when Cyrus was killed and Darius took over, King Darius, he carried on the work. He continued to work through, Yahweh continued to work through the empire of Persia to accomplish God's purposes. 
It's like something our brother Marty Wright said to me just this week, and he says it all the time. The enemy can never disrupt God's promises. He can only disrupt the process. God's promises are going to come. And God's going to work how God's going to work. And so when Cyrus dies and the leading general Darius assumes the throne, the second temple ends up being built. And you read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah and Haggai in your Bible. So when you're reading those books that are often called the Minor Prophets, they all fit the same timeline of that 6th century. But in Haggai, we're not there at the rebuilt temple yet. The world is in political unrest now because the new empire is in charge. There's always battles, right? The world powers are quaking. God's people of Judah is just like a small province caught between competing world powers, like a mouse between two cats or like a bowl of banana pudding between me and Hoyt Davenport. They're just caught there, right? They're just stuck. They're just stuck. And due to the shrinking numbers caused by the exile, right, when they were taken over, Judah is essentially... A powerless, backwater, Persian province, little larger than many U.S. counties. And the world power surround them. (laughs) And it's got to be scary. And by the time we get to Haggai chapter 1, 15 years ago, the people of God had committed to rebuilding the temple. They did the pledge campaign, you know what I mean? Like how church do. Like they did a pledge campaign and they committed to doing this. And 15 years had gone by. And they had lost their priority. And they kept saying among themselves, the time is just not right. You ever said that? The time is just not right. To do that thing I committed to God. The time is just not right. Well, enter Haggai. Look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Which, by the way, the Lord of Heaven's armies or the Lord of hosts is mentioned, I think, 15 times in the text. That lets you know who has the power here, right? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, read it with me, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what they keep saying. I just want you to see that's where I get it from. It's from the text. And they have, and, and really, they haven't been settled back into their land very long. The society was in political unrest. That means the economy is fragile along with everything else. And so Haggai is raised up as a poet prophet to preach in 520 B.C. to challenge this mindset. And he reminds them, That their idea about it not being the right time to rebuild God's temple is actually incongruent. It's off base. It doesn't make sense when he looks at their situation because in the meantime, they have rebuilt their own personal houses. They have gotten jobs. They've started businesses. They've planted crops. They're taking care of themselves. And I can't say I blame them. The world's in political unrest. you got to get what you can get while you can. But Haggai tries to remind them, look, you're growing food. You're going to work. You're earning money. You're buying a house. And this is what Haggai asks. He says, where's this really getting you? Matter of fact, look at the text so you can see that I get this from chapter 3, from 1 verse 3. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much but harvest little. See that? You eat, read it with me, but are not satisfied. You drink, read it with me, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but what? Cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear 
as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. All of their work isn't producing the life they want. Listen to the text in verse 9. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all of you are busy building your own fine houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops and drought to starve you and your livestock to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Now we'll unpack that text more next week. But catch the narrative of Haggai. Yahweh is saying, your priorities are twisted. It isn't that building your own home or working to earn a living is wrong. It is the why and the how behind the what you are doing. You with me? It's the why and the how behind the what. We live in a society that says oftentimes even still the means justifies the ends. Lord knows we do it when it comes to violence. But Yahweh is all about the means, not just the end. They are trying to build their lives based upon their own dreams and priorities. And they're relying on their own determination and efforts to get it done. And I have no doubt that when they were successful, which it doesn't look like they were successful often, that they would thank God and give God the glory, just like a musician who wins an award, right? Be a song about drinking and all kinds of things and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I want to thank God who helped me write this song. <laughs> right? Give all praise to the Lord. That's how everybody talks. They're giving thanks to God, but, but their priorities aren't reflective of a life that's actually in submission to God or trust God. They don't have the power to produce, listen to me, they don't have the power to produce or sustain the blessings. And they forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing. And so they just built their own lives. And it called my mind back to something Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 8 through 9, when he said, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit Listen, this is, this is the good part, actually. Those who live to please the Spirit will what? Harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. When Jesus says, I've had, come to have, so you can have life and life to the fullest, this is another way Paul's saying it. When we sow into the Spirit of God, we reap of the Spirit of God. That will be life-giving work. The enemy may try to disrupt the process, but the enemy cannot take away the promise. But when we begin in our own efforts, we often have to, to sustain what we've begun in our own efforts. And the truth is we can't. When we live to satisfy ourselves, our own priorities, no matter how smart, successful, or savvy we are, whatever it is we produce will not be sustained. It may fill our bellies with good food and good drink, but it will not fill our hearts with joy or souls with peace. When we find ourselves living this way, we, like Yahweh's people in Haggai's story, are in need of a whole life, full-scale renovation. So if you want to know where I'm going, 
I want to talk about renovation. In Haggai's story, God's people are in need of a renewed imagination and their priorities are in need of reorganization. And sometimes, so it is true with us. Haggai needed them to see that they needed to press on toward this whole life renovation and follow through what they had committed when they said we will rebuild the temple, despite the political unrest and economic fragility around them. And apparently, when you read the story, their hearts were tender to Haggai's preaching because they began the work of rebuilding God's temple. And that's how the story ends. It actually ends with a party. And it ends with a renewed imagination for sure and a renewed life and a renewed everything for them. And we could say that the big idea of Haggai's ministry is the return of the Lord's presence and the return of the Lord's blessing to God's people so that they could actually be who God created them to be. They had forgotten that in their Bibles, they were created by God to be a light unto the nations. They had forgotten that they were to be the instrument through which God would bring about liberation, not just to them, but to the world. They had forgotten that when they loved the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the poor, they had forgotten that when they kept the laws of Torah and they did what is right and had just business practices and just neighborly practices, that they would get the attention of the surrounding nations and the nations would say who are y'all who is your God they've forgotten all of that we do too sometimes I do too sometimes and we need a Haggai and when Haggai will see God taking a people out of exile who had grown accustomed to living scattered chaotic oppressed lives and he'll renovate them before they could have the life that they wanted hear me out renovation was necessary Renovation had to come first. Renovation is often a painful process because renovation is always about transformation. When Allison and I first purchased a home in Columbus, Georgia over 20 years ago, we, we decided to renovate it. And I remember this process happening in two ways. Restoration, everybody say restoration. And replacement, everybody say replacement. Restoration and replacement were both required for the renovation of our home. Now, restoration happened when we used some of the existing structures and existing pieces of the home, both exteriorly and interiorly, to work around at something new. We left the existing roof and the wood paneling in place. We left the existing cabinetry, among other interior pieces in place, and we restored these by either touching them up with paint or replacing certain pieces around them. And I want to be clear, I didn't do any of this Allison did because we all know how useless I am with tools. There was no Danny Poe in Columbus, Georgia for me to call. No Hoyt Davenport to call, just Allison Ligon. And both were required to do restoration and to do replacement because there was at some point where we had to replace certain things. Restoration is about taking something old and doing whatever it takes to bring it back to its original intent, but in a more perfect way. You with me on that? Y'all catching it? That's restoration. But renovating our house also required tearing some things down. Y'all with me on that? We had to replace some stuff. Replacement happens when we tear an existing structure down and put in a new one altogether. 
And, and the thing is, it may look entirely different than the old. It may serve an entirely different purpose. We replaced, for example, the new countertops as well as our flooring throughout the house. And it gave the house an entirely different feel and an entirely different function. We tore down a wall and we opened up a space. When you go through the renovation process, you may use existing material in the rebuilding and renovation process, but you may also throw some of the old material away because it's no longer reusable. Are y'all following what I'm doing? I'm speaking in metaphor here. I'm hoping you're thinking this through with me. When it comes to our lives being renovated, the Lord may use existing habits or affections. He may say, that habit's a good one. I need to shift it a bit. That affection you have is actually a good one. I need to renovate it a bit. I need to shift it a bit. But there may be times where God says, that habit is life-taking. It's destructive. I need to take it from you. That affection you have, you need to tear it down. You with me? Because it'll get in the way of your renovation. I'm no longer speaking a metaphor. When it comes to our lives being renovated, the Lord may tweak things a little. Turn them around on us to renovate us. The Lord may want to replace some things. The Lord may take the empty space left from tearing it down. Maybe take a, 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 a torn down and replaced affection and put something else that is completely new, a habit to build something new. The bottom line is that whole life renovation will always involve the replacement or restoration of our affections. You hear me? Haven't I been thinking about this all week long? That whole life renovation will always involve the replacement or restoration of our affections. Our affections influence our direction, including our priorities. What we want sets the course for where we go. And where we want to go has to be determined by the way we organize our lives to get there. If you want that car, you've got to save up for that car. And which means you may have to sacrifice certain things in order to save up for that car. This is, not, this is not like profound, but it's so habitual that sometimes we fall into the trap that the people of Yahweh fell into when they said, Yahweh, we'll rebuild the temple. We need the temple back. We want you back, God. And 15 years go by and they've got nice houses and great jobs, and, but yet nothing is sustaining them. They feel empty in their soul. And so Haggai says, let's talk about that. Something's going to have to change. Sometimes what you and I are pursuing isn't what God wants us to pursue, but what all the time, all the time what you and I are pursuing is evidenced by the fruit we are producing. The fruit we produce in our lives, which is the outcomes of the decisions that we leave behind us, is the evidence of our affections and priorities. It is our everyday legacy. Too many of us plan for a legacy for when we die and we forget about the legacy we leave when we live. When I lay my head down on my pillow tonight, what did I leave behind in this day? In the relationships of people that I love and who love me. In the relationship with the neighbor that I drove by who's flying a sign at Target. What did I really leave behind? We sow these affections and priorities that we have into our relationships, into our habits, into our everyday actions, and it produces fruit. The question is, is it rotten fruit or life-giving fruit? That's really the question. 
And you know what's weird about that is we're never going to really be able to discern that on our own because we don't often eat our own fruit. Our family does. Our friends do. Our neighbors do. So if you want to know whether or not your fruit is rotten, ask a brother. Ask somebody who's in life with you. And then be ready to hear that it's not very good. In Haggai, God's people forgot their purpose and as a result lost their priorities because they pursued the wrong affections. And they were producing fruit that would not last and it wasn't nourishing their lives individually or as a community. All of this renovation that was going to be required of them had to come in terms of restoration and replacement. And all of that requires change that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. But here's the thing. To be changed, we must be willing to change. God's people have a long history of saying we're willing to change. But usually... We mean we will change if it is on our own terms, aligns with our own political beliefs or our own religious beliefs or our own social beliefs or allows us to hold on to our affections and priorities. And we have good reasons for it. I've never met a Christian who did not have good reasons for holding on to their affections or priorities that was still death dealing, including myself. We're not mindless by what we hold and believe and love, generally speaking. I'll believe that. We have purposes. It's like I've said, if you've ever had an idol in your life, I'm willing to bet you didn't wake up on any given morning and say, man, I can't wait to worship my idol today. Nobody does that. We just do it until somebody comes to us like a high guy and says, that's an idol. And then we have a choice to make. We either allow the Holy Spirit to change us, which means we've got to be willing to change, or we change churches, or we change relationships, or we change whatever, right? Like that's how we do They couldn't do that. The Jews couldn't be like, "Mm, I'm going to change ethnicities. They couldn't do that. God's people have a long history of this. Because misguided affections and misplaced priorities can lead to misguided allegiances and misplaced hopes. Here's what I mean. We can believe in the wrong things and plan for the wrong things that lead to being loyal to the wrong things because we place our hope in the wrong things. It's having affection for someone who who you know continues to hurt you and yet you're loyal to them anyway. Right? It's staying in that job too long. It's slaving away to accomplish goals that in the end are costing you your joy and peace right now. It's holding on to a dream that you have in the future and totally missing your present and the joy that's possible even now. The Lord has always been about renovating his people because renovation leads to transformation and that actually becomes our liberation. That actually liberates us and frees us from being held captive to these misguided allegiances and misplaced hopes, these misguided affections and misplaced priorities. We do not have to be held captive to them, beloved. We do not have to be held captive to our jobs or abusive relationships or anxieties or traumas. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of each one of us, beckoning us, yearning us. Matter of fact, the Bible says yearning jealously for us. That's what James says. To be changed. 
But that change may require a restoration of existing things, which then may be a tweak, or it may be replacement of existing things, which may be tear down and tear out. But what you know is that God is not going to start something God doesn't intend to finish, and God is not going to do anything that is not for our good. And what else we can know? Is that the only way something cannot be renovated is if it is no longer in existence. The only way something cannot be changed is if it is utterly useless or dead. And you are not dead. And you are not utterly useless. So what should this teach us about our lives live with God? And what does this teach us about being a church? Here's the thing. We must always be changing. That's what I believe. I believe the spirit of this text and the spirit of the prophets is that we must always be changing because God will always be about renovation. I am always, always invited by the spirit to look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. Are you with me? Are you with me? Always. But for Fred to look more like Jesus, I got to take on John the Baptist philosophy. I must decrease, so what? He can increase. That's called change. But here's the thing. It's not going to ignore all the other beliefs and affections and priorities I have. You may have given your life away to something. And God may look at you and say, that thing you gave your life away to needs to be renovated. That affection. Or it needs to be replaced. And that's hard. That's hard. Like Mark Twain said, the only one who likes change is a wet baby. Nobody likes change. We will always be working to rebuild our lives in light of God's way as revealed in Jesus. We will always be searching for what needs to be restored and or replaced because that's called discipleship. That is the way of joy. Because what I know about joy is that I belong to God and that isn't up for change. You with me on that? That isn't up for change. What we learn from Scripture and from Haggai is that if we're going to press on into God's mission and purposes as individuals and as a church, we will have to change in order to be changed. And we will not change for the sake of change. We'll change for the sake of God's presence as God's missional people whose allegiance has been placed to Christ our King. And church, if we ever find ourselves not changing, we have died. That phrase, you can't teach old dog new tricks, it ought not to be true by Holy Spirit people. Should it? I don't think it should be true for Holy Spirit people. A church's resistance to change though, like WCC's resistance to change as a collective body, I learned this a long time ago. Our collective resistance to change will be bound up to your personal resistance to change. You know that, right? That we collectively will not be able to move where God wants us to move if I'm not tending to my own house. But I can't tend to my own house to the neglect of the church being able to move. If I do that, then I find myself falling in the trap of Haggai. And I need a Haggai to come to me and say, look, 
You're going to have to trust the collective body. You're going to have to trust the wisdom of the Spirit working among the people. And as you go trusting that, you submit yourself to the change that comes from that journey. Does that make sense? Because what Haggai did is they flipped it. They said, we'll build God's temple when the time is right. The time is never right. The risk of sounding like I listen to something from Tony Robbins. The time is now. I mean, that's what Paul would say. Salvation is today. Liberation is today. So what is it in you that God is trying to renovate, but you're holding on? What affection do you hold that God is trying to renovate? He's not wanting to take it away. He wants to redefine it, maybe re-angle it, maybe redirect it you're holding on to what is it that God needs to replace in you that God's been begging God's been working God's been pressing providentially in other ways to replace in you but you are not letting God replace that you are holding on to it because you know that if it tears down it's going to hurt and here's the beauty of it our individual ability to change is most often empowered by being a part of a community that changes us you with me you know what I mean like when I learned to love Bill or I learned to love Jenna or I learned to love Maggie their relationship and who they are in the spirit can be used by God to change affections and priorities in me because that's what it means to love them you with me on that that's why the fruit of the spirit can't happen without an other in my life that's why there are over 51 another commands. We are many times the instrument of God's renovation for one another. Which is why the idea of I need to get my house in order by myself first is, is fiction. It's biblical fiction. I get my house in order while I am at work getting God's house in order with you. And sometimes how you get your house in order influences how I get my house in order. And the only reason I know that is because we are collectively moving forward together. Does that make sense? Because Bill needs an extra $200 and I don't have a two. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm saving for that thing with this extra $200. But my brother needs $200. So I'm going to have to give him my $200. And that changes me. Are you with me now with the practical? Or Bill needs help with time. And, and I, I've got things I've got to do today. Like, I mean, there's football. I mean, I don't like football. But there's football and I want to watch football. But you know what? Bill needs my help today. And, um, but man, you know, the Cowboys are playing or whatever, and, and so um, they're going to hit a home run, and you know, I, know, I know what it is. I'm really just being, but they, like, but, but, but they need help, and, 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 and the Eagles are playing, and, and, and they need help, right, Tony? The Eagles are playing. You and Jonathan with y'all's idols, the Eagles are playing, and, and, and y'all, are, y'all are doing it. Y'all are trying to get it done, and, and it's okay, bro. Ain't nobody judging you um, except for the Eagles scores and their, their team. But, like, but Bill needs help, so I'm going to sacrifice that to be with Bill, and now all of a sudden I'm like, there was joy in that. God is moving in this church toward a beautiful, ongoing direction. <laughs> and every one of us are a part of it. Every one of us. And because we are, every one of us are going to be changed. Every one of us. Will you be willing to change? That's the question. Every week we come to the table of the Eucharist, we're saying yes. We're singing the song, More Like Thee, right? We're saying yes. We're saying all to Jesus, I surrender. We're saying yes. 
we come to the table of the God who did the most profound change. Who came as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish man to save us as son of man, son of God. And to welcome us to the table of the Lord and to say, I, I want to change you. I love you just as you are, not as you should be, but my love has the power to change you into who you can be. Will you let my love change you? And it does not happen at your address and in your zip code alone. It happens in a community of faith where together we learn how to be the people of God and as God changes us, we are changed. Question is, will we be willing? You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.